Hello and welcome to Power Play for this Wednesday, October 5th. I'm Joyce Napier. Evan Solomon is away again today. Coming up, Hockey Canada's future. I think it, it boggles the mind uh, that Hockey Canada is continuing to dig in its heels. Uh, parents across the country are losing faith have lost faith in Hockey Canada. Certainly, uh, politicians here in Ottawa have lost faith in Hockey Canada. The Prime Minister slams Hockey Canada as Quebec's Hockey Association withholds funding and Ontario's comes out against national fees. We have the latest on the embattled organization that controls so much of a beloved sport here at home. Then, cracking down on Iran. Is the IRGC a terrorist group, yes or no? Amid brutal assaults by Iran's so-called morality police on their own people, the Conservatives are calling for the government here to list the Iranian Revolutionary Guard as a terrorist organization. Is Canada doing enough to stand against Iran? MPs debate. Plus, Pierre Poilievre's pull ahead. The latest seat project projections, rather, from Nanos Research show Poilievre's Conservatives could win more seats than Trudeau's Liberals if an election were held today. Pollster Nick Nanos joins the press gallery to break it all down. This is Power Play. Let's get to the players. Hockey Canada on the ice. The Prime Minister slammed the organization today saying Hockey Canada is failing to take the situation it faces seriously. Hockey Canada is embroiled in a firestorm over sexual assault claims and a fund to pay off alleged victims. And now two provincial organizations are hitting Hockey Canada's wallet. Hockey Quebec is withholding funds from Hockey Canada saying in part... In French, we don't have confidence in the capacity of the Federation to change the culture of hockey within the current system in place. And the Ontario Hockey Federation also raised the issue of funds with Hockey Canada, saying OIHF has already requested via Hockey Canada's former chair of the board, Michael Brandamour, on July uh, 29, 2022, that Hockey Canada not collect the $3 participation assessment fee for the 22-23 season, which he confirmed he would take to the board of directors. It is our understanding now that this request was never directed to the board before his departure. The Ontario Hockey Federation says it put in the request again. So what does this fallout mean for Hockey Canada? Let's bring in National News Parliamentary Bureau reporter Annie Bergeron-Oliver. Hi, Annie. Good to see you. I know you're covering this story. Um, let's start with the provincial organizations. What are they saying? Well, it's a lot of mixed messaging that we're getting from the different provincial organizations. Hockey Canada, obviously, is the strongest one to come out. They're really leading the charge here. They came out this morning, the first organization to say, we no longer have confidence in Hockey Canada, in the leaders. They want to see change. They want recommendations that they put forward a couple months ago answered. They want to know more information about this interim report. And they said because they don't have confidence in Hockey Canada, they will be withholding this $3 registration fund. So Hockey Canada, Hockey Quebec, 
Quebec is really the strongest one coming out here. Then we're hearing from Ontario, the counterpart. They've said that they did ask previously. They brought it up with a former board member that they too would like this $3 registration fee withheld. The question is, well, why didn't um, Hockey Ontario follow up? They said that now, sort of following on Quebec's heels, they have asked to be withheld. The question is, well, how does this all work? So Ontario was asking Hockey Canada if they cannot collect the fee anymore, whereas Quebec has been much stronger, saying we are withholding this. It is not going to Hockey Canada. You then have Saskatchewan. They have come out today saying not really, no comment that they, uh, when asked if they still have confidence in Hockey Canada, the answer is uh, yes. And then you also have Nova Scotia who says that they are going to be holding a meeting next week to sort of discuss next steps. So, but they're also private sponsors. There's, there, we know that the federal government withdrew, is withholding funds. What are private sponsors telling you? So the latest one that we've heard from is uh, Tim Hortons. So back in, I believe it was June, Tim Hortons came out and said that they were temporarily suspending support when it came to uh, the World Juniors. And today they're saying that they have actually informed Hockey Canada that Tim Hortons will no longer be sponsoring the men's programming. So we have the statement, they say, we're deeply disappointed in the lack of progress that Hockey Canada has made. And they say that we have officially informed Hockey Canada this week that we have pulled out of all men's hockey programming for the 2022 2023 season and they say that you know there hasn't been a lot of progress now Tim Hortons does say that they're going to continue supporting the women's as well as para sports as well as youth sports so it's really just the men's and that ultimately is a lot of money so what kind of impact can that have on Hockey Canada I mean clearly it's a hit to its reputation uh, clearly it's a loss of confidence what impact financially can it have on, on, on Hockey Canada? Is it still viable? Well, anytime you look at a, any type of crisis, really money talks. And in this case, this is a major sponsor that is now uh, saying that they're not going to be giving money to Hockey Canada. Now, Hockey Canada does still have a lot of sponsors, but a number of them have already pulled out previously or suspended. Now, Tim Hortons, of course, making this announcement, it is one of the largest sponsors. So that is going to be a big blow to Hockey Canada. Again, they do have a lot of money. They do still have support from provincial organizations that are feeding into the system. But, you know, this just adds to this torrent of criticism and adds to the narrative that Hockey Canada needs to make a change. You heard the Prime Minister today again saying that it's mind-boggling that there hasn't been a bigger change, that, you know, they're digging in their heels. Pascal Senonge, the sports minister, other politicians all united saying there needs to be change. So if Hockey Canada is not listening to that, perhaps something like Tim Hortons making this big financial decision will, you know, be that sort of push to, to make change. And, may, and maybe other sponsors too, uh, Annie. Annie Bergeron-Oliver has the story for you tonight on National News. Thanks for taking the time to talk to us. And let's bring in someone who's long called for Hockey Canada to be better and to do better. Our next guest says Hockey Canada is stuck in neutral or going in reverse instead of evolving. So can Hockey Canada regain the trust of the country? Let's find out. Joining me now is Brock McGillis, one of the first openly gay hockey professionals. He is a former Ontario Hockey League professional hockey player who had a nine-year career on the ice. And now he's an activist for equality in sports. Welcome, Brock, to Power Play. Thanks for joining us and taking the time. Um, I want I want to start with 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 uh, you know Hockey Quebec Ontario withdrawing uh, these fees. Um, what do you make of that? 
And what kind of message? It, 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 it seems that so far, Hockey Canada keeps saying that you know everything is fine. Are they not getting the message? Hi, Joyce. Thank you for having me. They don't seem to grasp it. I, I, I fear that they have little to no comprehension of how Canadians feel, how uh, governing bodies of different provinces feel, and, and how hockey people uh, across the country and beyond feel. So do you think that other hockey, you know, provincial hockey bodies should follow suit? Because we heard Annie now saying, well, some of them are thinking about it. Some of them don't want to yet. Why do you think they are hesitating? Um, I think there's a number of reasons. Uh, backlash, future backlash, if, if these people remain in control. Um, there's power dynamics at play within the sport of hockey that... Um, in the future when players are being selected for different levels for different tournaments that their province will face backlash and that they will, you know, their, their players won't be looked at in the same light as uh, players from other provinces. I think opportunity for people within the province to grow and move up within the Hockey Canada ranks. And I think there's people who adhere to the hockey norms who run provincial organizations the same way Hockey Canada. So um, it's, it, the cultures aren't very different, unfortunately. And because of that, I think um, th they are comfortable with the status quo because they adhere to it. Despite all the noise that's out there, despite you know all all this the, the reporting, despite the the comments from the prime minister, the sports minister Pascal Saint-Onge, they continue to slam Hockey Canada's response. You know, going as as far as to call on the executives to step down. I mean, is that is that enough? Is that even realistic? Um, I, I think it's beyond realistic. I think as long as these people are in charge, I mean, they've spoken. Uh, what, what's it been now, four months, five months, about an action plan? And yet they've given no directive to any junior hockey team across the country. They've uh, initiated nothing that I've seen. Um, it's, it's a lot of words and little action. Um, so, so to me, they are not equipped. And from their answers and justifications of actions, even to the point of Andrea Skinner saying that um, sexual assault and sexual abuse exists outside the hockey culture, well, well that is essentially saying that we, we as a culture, well, yeah, but it exists elsewhere. It's a justification as opposed to saying, yes, we need to fix our culture. Yes, we need to be better because we influence Canadian culture. And if we can be better here, maybe we can influence others to be better. It's about leadership and the lack thereof that we've seen so far from them. Um, I, I've spoken to Hockey Canada on a number of occasions and told them that I don't think their programming and their education is very solid, is very good, and is impactful. And we're seeing it through the fact that every year the boys' side of hockey has less and less people um, registering. They're unable to recruit and retain young boys to play the sport. And they just kind of go, yeah, well. Now, how do you think they should, you know, build back trust? By the way, you were talking about the interim board chair, Andrea Skinner. We saw her uh, on the screen testifying yesterday at the parliamentary committee. But so let, let me ask you, Brock, what do you think uh, Hockey Canada can do right now to build back that trust? I've been saying it since the get-go that they need to, um, well, I think first and foremost, they need new 
new voices in there. Um, I think at one point Andrea said they couldn't find people that didn't have a uh, bias against Hockey Canada to come and work with them, and it's not the case. They just are uncomfortable with people who have been critical of them, and they need to work with the people that they see as disruptors of the culture. And, and work with them to fix the culture. And, and um, I mean, personally, I think we're at a point now where they've dug their heels in the sand and said, we're not moving. So it's time for somebody new to come in. And those people then have to work with the non-traditional hockey folks to evolve this culture. We need to humanize issues. We need education. We need proper reform for those who um, step out of line. And we need to look at barriers of entry. And I think looking at those four areas and putting together proper, proper plans for it across the country. I mean, if you're going to spend upwards of, I estimate, close to $100,000 on a survey, then you should be able to spend money on proper education and, and uh, programs to ensure that your sport is safe, that your sport is equitable, and that everyone feels good and empowered in your space. And we obviously will be following this. Uh, Brock McGillis, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. And coming up, in 2018, MPs passed a motion for the House to designate the Islamic Revolutionary Guard, a branch of Iran's military, a terrorist entity. So four years later, as protests erupt across Iran, why hasn't Canada done, done that yet? MPs debate next day right here with PowerPlay. Is the IRGC a terrorist group? Yes or no? Mr. Speaker, we have recognized that Iran is a state sponsor of terrorism. Uh, we continue to move forward uh, in uh, holding the IRGC to account, including by putting sanctions on some of their, uh, the number of their top leaders to ensure that they cannot take safe haven or buy property in Canada. We will continue to hold this bloodthirsty regime to account as uh, young Iranians and the people around the world stand with them uh, in defense of their fundamental rights and freedoms. Welcome back. Protests continue to rock Iran. Anti-government protests erupted almost three weeks ago after the death of Masha Amini, a 22-year-old Kurdish woman who died after being detained by Iran's morality police. Protests have not been limited to Iran, though. Again, the protests against Iran's government have been held in Canada, too, among other countries. There have been calls for the Canadian government to take a tougher stance on the Iranian regime by imposing tougher sanctions, designated the Islamic Revolutionary Guard a terrorist entity, and getting justice for the families of victims killed in flight PS752, which was shot down by Iran in January 2020. This week, the feds have leveled sanctions targeting 25 Iranian individuals and nine entities. But does this go far enough. Let's ask our panel of MPs. Parliamentary Secretary to the Prime Minister Greg Fergus is here. Conservative Foreign Affairs critic Michael Chong and NDP Foreign Affairs critic Heather McPherson have joined us. Thank you for, to the three of you uh, for being here. Uh, Greg, let me start with you. Is your government considering designated the Revolutionary Guard a terrorist entity? Well, before I answer that question, let me just first say 
how much our hearts go out, uh, not only to the Canadians who were killed on PS752 and their families who have suffered an incalculable loss, but also to the people of Iran who are now protesting against their murderous government. Uh, to your question specifically, no option is off the table. The Prime Minister has made very clear when he announced, uh, and Minister Jali had announced the further sanctions that we've taken this week, that there are going to be further consequences to what's going on in Iran now and what, of course, happened to Canadians in 2020. Um, I've met with families of uh, flight PS flight, flight PS752. I participated uh, in the rallies in Montreal and here in Ottawa. Uh, I am personally committed, and I know this government is very much committed to making sure that justice is done and that people don't have to fear this murderous regime anymore. So, Michael Chong, let me ask you, um, what would be the implications of designated the Iran Revolutionary Guard a terrorist entity because it is so connected to the regime? That's a great question. Well, what it would mean is that senior officers, officers of the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps could not come to Canada and freely operate with impunity, threatening members of our Persian we, community okay, here. Okay, but do we know that this is what is happening? Do we have facts? Do we know for sure that, you know, we need to back these things with facts? Yes, so we know that senior members of the Iranian military have been reported by media to be here in the GTA and other parts of the country in recent years. There have also been credible reports of money being laundered here by senior members of the military here in Canada. So that's why we've been calling for the IRGC to be listed as a terrorist organization. But this government's priorities are all upside down. Not only are they refusing to list the IRGC and allowing officers of that organization to operate with impunity here in Canada, they've also failed to address things, for example, like recent reports in the Globe and Mail that Chinese police officers are operating here from the People's Republic of China with three illegally established police stations in the GTA. And yet the government has failed to act. And at the same time, at the same time as all this is going on, they're refusing to let officers, U.S. officers from Homeland Security come to Canada to staff Nexus offices so that we can reopen the border and allow Canadians to travel on their Nexus passes, even though we have an agreement with the United States and they're our closest allies. So this government's priorities on who gets into this country and who doesn't, what gets listed as a terrorist entity and what doesn't, are all upside down. I, I, know, I, you know, I actually would love to talk about that Nexus story, but mm -hmm. unfortunately, that, yeah, and I, I do agree with you, there's something going there, But, Heather, I want to ask you, so, you know, as in, in, in Afghanistan, Canada doesn't really have a presence anymore. Iran, the same thing. Mm -hmm. uh, when that plane was shot down, you know, we had to rely on other countries yeah. to help us out. And that happens in a lot of countries with, with our embassies that have either shut down or never op reopened. Why would we want to make our relationship with Iran even, you know, more tense and not be able then on the ground or, or to have a presence in that country, which this is what diplomacy is all about. It's not just to make nice with the nice guys. It's also to, to have relations with people that are more difficult. Yeah. You know, there is, there is a difference there, though. There, there is no 
there is no way that Canada should be making nice with the IRGC in any in any way. They are a murderous regime. There is no doubt. Um, and and what I what I do see is I, I hear you. I mean, the government has done nothing to make sure that Canadian organizations can work in Afghanistan. We have 23 million people in Afghanistan that are that are starving to death, and Canadian organizations can't get in there. Um, you know what we're seeing in Iran it makes me enraged. It's been a thousand days, and the government has not done the bare minimum. It took the death would of a 22-year-old girl not, to get them to bring not, sanctions but forward. would not a presence have helped in the investigation of the downing of that plane if Canada had a presence there? I'm not saying you know you have to make nice and, 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 I get and exchange niceties, but if you have a presence, if you have eyes on the ground and mm -hmm. ears on the yeah. ground, then your investigation becomes a little bit more... A little bit easier. To be honest, I think that's a question for Mr. Chong because it, it was his government that, right. that took that out. You know, I do believe that the government of Canada, the government we have right now, the Liberal government, needs to do more. You know, why have we not been pushing for an ICC and an ICAO investigation? Why have we not put more than 25 people on that sanction list? And frankly, our sanctions, even with Ukraine, I don't see them being adequate. Do we know, does, do parliamentarians know that they are being enforced? You can name anyone you want. If you're not going to enforce it, if you're not going to make sure that those those people that are responsible for the murder of of women in Iran are not held accountable, if you so, don't make sure that's happening, it doesn't matter who you put on the list. Let, let, let me get Greg Fergus to answer uh, uh, th this because there was a motion in the House. Your party voted in favor of it, and so why not designate it? What? Why? You, you say everything's on the table. This is on the table. Is this not a good time to do that? More than everything's on the table, a lot of work has been done, and you won't hear this from my colleagues, but I will mention the things that have been done. First of all, with regard to ICAO, we are certainly pursuing that option. The ICAO meeting is coming up at the end of the month. Canada has led an international effort, along with our allies from the UK, from, uh, from, the U, uh, from Ukraine, uh, as well as from Sweden, to making sure that we get moving on this one, that we are going to win our case. That was a solemn promise that the, prom the Prime Minister had made. There are ways to do that. They're not talking about the sanctions which we put on the top leadership of Iran uh, and members of the Iranian uh, Revolutionary Guard Corps, uh, designating the IRGC Quds Force as a terrorist entity, making sure that's that military branch for your listeners who don't know. Uh, that's a military branch of the government, making sure that they have been sanctioned, individuals have been sanctioned. Canada cannot and will not be a safe haven for these people to come to Canada or their relatives to launder okay. their money in, the, okay. in this country. These are firm steps that you're taking and further steps are being considered. Okay, so we don't have a lot of time and I want to hear from both of you. You're the opposition. What should the government do? Okay, sanctions, sanctions are quite, not enough, so quite, what? Quite simply, they should list the IRGC as a terrorist entity under the Criminal Code of Canada. On January 8th of 2020, it was the IRGC that shot down a civilian airliner containing 50 Canadian citizens, 55 Canadian citizens and 30 Canadian residents. There has been no accountability for the IRGC shooting down that airliner that killed all those Canadians. And it wasn't high-ranking officers that shot down that airliner. It was regular members of the IRGC that shot it down, and that's why they should be listed. I, I just have a few seconds of left. Of course. Ultimately, you know what? We're tired of hearing the government say everything's on the table. Do things. Do actions. Do the things. Don't tell us that they're on the table. It's been a thousand days.
Well, I'm sure we're going to talk about this again, and I'm sure we're going to hear about it in the House. Greg Fergus, I know we were having audio issues. Michael Chong, uh, Heather McPherson, thanks. thanks for being here. Thanks for having us. And coming up, Russia formalizes its claims of four illegally annexed Ukrainian territories. This despite Ukrainian forces making critical advances in those regions. So what are the next steps for Ukraine? Ukraine's ambassador to Canada, Yulia Kovaliv, joins us next. Stay right here with PowerPlay. Russian President Vladimir Putin has formally signed his annexation of four Ukrainian territories into Russian law. The four annexed regions represent up to 18% of Ukrainian territory and is the biggest annexation in Europe since the Second World War. The West has denounced this annexation as an illegitimate and illegal. Despite Putin's annexation, Ukrainian forces have successfully taken back dozens of towns in these regions in orange on the map here. So with Ukraine gaining ground, what are the next steps for Ukrainians in these annexed regions? Let's find out. And joining me now is Ukraine's ambassador to Canada, Yulia Kovaliv, ambassador Always nice to have you on the show. Thanks for being here. Um, I want to ask you about today, uh, uh, Vladimir Putin announced that these four regions of your country, of Ukraine, are now part of the Russian Federation. However, we're hearing that so Ukrainian soldiers are taking over parts of that. So do you know what is happening on the ground? Yes, on the ground, um, we are advancing. And even since September 1st, we already managed to uh, retake and liberate uh, 8,000 square kilometers of the sovereign Ukraine territory. And today, few of the towns and villages in Kherson region have been liberated by Ukrainian soldiers. So, of course, this is the Ukrainian territory. And, and all of the world, and uh, including... Canada and uh, all of the Western countries uh, condemned this illegal, I would not say even the referendums, but attempts of the annexation. Specifically, why attempts? Because every day Ukrainian soldiers are moving further on liberating the territories on those regions. And of course, those referendums were the sham one, which were done under the guns forcefully and nobody can believe that there is the will of Ukrainian people that was declared. And we see it as Ukrainian soldiers are entering these cities and the villages, how happy the people are there that Ukrainian flag is coming back. Um, not only the Ukrainian flag, it also we are quickly restoring all the infrastructure, the post office, social security payment healthcare system, railway connection, just to give the people the chance for a normal life. Because what they went through this month of being under Russian occupation, it is a real horror. And, and what is happening with Russian soldiers who are there? Um, some of them are just abandoning their posts. Are they being taken prisoners? Is there, is there a lot of battles going on at the moment? So on the liberated areas, we have the, the full control over this territories and also the towns and villages and Russian soldiers and there are many interceptions and many video they are just running out 
of that. So since we are advancing on the battlefield, a Russian army is going, but we're just kicking them off uh, from these territories. So I want to ask you about the Sabarija nuclear plant, which is the biggest one in Europe. We talk a lot about it yeah. uh, since the beginning of the, of the, of the Russian invasion. Putin says it is in Russian hands, but it isn't. It is still in Ukrainian hands. So the Zaporizhia, and you're totally right, this is the biggest nuclear plant. And what is happening for the last three months uh, is a clear nuclear threat and the terrorism, because there were the shellings around that. Uh, there was an AIA mission uh, on the Zaporizhia, which clearly stated that there is the weapons and the military equipment just near the reactors. And the Ukrainian uh, team who was working there and is working there is under the immense pressure, which is, of course, a huge security risk for the safety of this nuclear facility. Of course, like we saw today, this illegal attempt of naming uh, the nuclear facility, it's Russian one, but this is another fake and another provocation from Russia because whatever they who do, this is the Ukrainian sovereign territory. These are Ukrainians who are maintaining them. They even kidnapped for several days the director of Zaporizhia power plant. He was captured and only uh, yesterday, two days ago, released. Uh, and of course, this all creates a huge pressure over the personnel and we, together with IA, have a very huge concerns about the safety and security of the, this nuclear facility. And, and, and Putin's threat, because he brings up the nuclear threat. Is there, um, is there any way to prevent that? Is there any way, do you believe that? Is that a threat? Is that, how real do you think it is? Um, you know, since February 21st, we lived through many of the Russian threats including the nuclear threats, physical threats and massive grace, what we were, the, the threats of the, the chemical weapons and, and many others. So, but what we understand and actually uh, see it from, from the ground, that the only way how we can secure uh, Ukrainians and, and Ukrainian sovereign borders is just advancing on the battlefield. What happened actually since September 1st? And let's imagine that in September we hadn't this success on the Kharkiv region. We could let up and one more quasi in this sham referendums. So that's why it is so important that our soldiers and our army is able to move further on the counteroffensive operations to liberate the territories. And we are doing it with the big support of our partners. It's our soldiers, well-trained, and we thank here the Canadian government for the Unifier program which started five years ago and brings and helps us to build this capacity. And also for all of our allies, including Canada, who are helping us with providing the, the weapons. So our army is able to, to move further and liberate the territories. And recently the President of the United States uh, announced more money and more weapons uh, to Ukraine. Uh, Ukraine Ambassador to Canada, Yulia Kovaliv, thank you so much for this. Thank you. And coming up, Pierre Poilievre is gaining ground in the polls. New projections from Nick Nanos show his party could win the most seats if an election was held today. 
He digs in with the, we dig in with the press gallery next. Stay right here with PowerPlay. And welcome back. The Conservatives would pick up the most seats in the House of Commons if an election was called today. That's according to the latest seat projections from Nanos Research. Take a look at this. The Conservatives would pick up 108 seats. The Liberals, 106. The NDP would take 41. The Bloc Québécois would get 24. The Greens would get two seats. And 57 seats would be too close to call. Now, that's interesting. Now, the Liberals and the NDP are in a confidence agreement that sees the NDP support this minority government through to 2025. But does this spell trouble for the Liberals down the line? Let's bring in the press gallery. Political Ottawa playbook writer Zian Loom is here. Canada's National Observer lead columnist Max Fawcett joins us from Alberta. And Nanos Research founder Nick Nanos is here. Nice to see you all. Uh, Nick, Nick, break it down for us. I mean, this is 57 too close to call. Um, what do you see? It's a shark tank. Joyce, how about that? You know, Justin Trudeau has been dropped into a shark tank. What we're seeing right now, at least, is that the Conservatives, on the ballot numbers, they have about a three or four point advantage. But what's actually critical is that the NDP are up and the Conservatives are up. And, you know, the thing is, is what we're seeing is vote splits that are benefiting both the New Democrats and the Conservatives. And, uh, and as a result, uh, we're seeing an increase in the probability of the Conservatives winning more seats and in the New Democrats, both of those parties winning seats. So good news for them. And why don't we just say bad news for Justin Trudeau, except for the fact that there isn't an election held today. So, so maybe how, 2025. So, so how much of this can be attributed to Pierre Poilievre? Well, I think we have to attribute it to a number of things. First of all, the NDP numbers are up and, and, the, and the Conservative numbers are up. And, you know, let's face it, you know, the Liberals have put out a welcome mat for Pierre Poiliev. They haven't even laid a hand on him. There hasn't been any campaign to kind of uh, define him or anything like that. So he's had free reign. And then for some of those progressive voters that might be disappointed with the Liberals, it looks like right now, at least, they're looking very carefully and seriously at the New Democrats as an alternative kind of progressive choice. So, Zian, I mean, I know the, the, uh, Nick Nanos shows just a two-seat difference, but there's 57 too close to call. I find that really interesting. I know it's a way, but you never know. Uh, it is still a minority government. How worried should the Liberals be? Well, it seems a bit premature right now for some worry. Um, what this is showing is, I guess, uh, some positive reinforcement for the Conservatives to keep on doing what they're doing, which includes producing, you know, 10-minute-long anti-Bank of Canada bond printing videos that don't have one mention of COVID or the pandemic. Um, but looking at the poll itself, like 108 seats versus uh, a gain, over two-seat gain, over 106, that's not a substantial uh, gain. Um, it's still a minority minority government, but albeit a conservative one. So uh, the question would be, how would Pierre Poiliev be able to kind of solidify that um, uh, power, I guess, with the two-seat lead, which is very thin, and a government could easily fall uh, over two seats? So, Max, you know, give us the view from, from Alberta. The NDP, the Liberals have a confidence agreement. Um, you know, how... Should the Liberals be looking at this? I mean, 
would give them probably more incentive to see this agreement with the NDP last at least another two years. I'll tell you, the view from Alberta is that people would be disappointed that the Conservatives are only in position to win 108 seats. You know, if this is Pierre Poilievre's honeymoon, it's, it's a pretty uh, unspectacular one. How should the Liberals be thinking about this? You know, like you said, they have time. They have three years, uh, potentially, until the next election. And these numbers feel very similar to the numbers that we saw with Andrew Scheer and Aaron O'Toole, you know, that the Conservatives sort of poked their heads out in front, even even in the campaigns they, they started in front. And people sort of window shopped the NDP. But when it came time to cast their ballots, they came home to the Liberals. And if, if I'm the NDP, I, I am not uh, filled with confidence and enthusiasm here. This This result... This polling makes me, I think, nervous that, um, you know, when it does come time to cast the ballot, it's going to be a Trudeau versus Polyev race, and they're going to get squeezed between the sides again. Here, speak to that. Well, okay. I know we could all talk about these things, but the fact of the matter is, numerically, in these projections, both the NDP and the Conservatives are up. So they shouldn't be complaining about being up, and we shouldn't be dismissing that because it's the, it's the trend that counts. Uh, and the fact of the matter is we have to see that the Pierre Poilievre's numbers have been trending positively over the last while. The NDP have been doing better uh, compared to the past. And, you know, put this into context, Jagmeet Singh has been the leader of the New Democrats for five years when he took over the leadership of the party. I think they were at a 15 or 16, maybe 17 percent, and now they're in the 20s. So, you know, the thing is, is for the Liberals, we have to remember they are near the end of this mandate. They've been in power for a long period of time, and it looks like there's a significant proportion of voters that are anxious. And also, you know, the, with 57 seats up for grabs, this isn't over. But we have to think of the direction, and right now the direction is favoring the New Democrats and the Conservatives. Of course, they always want more seats. But you got to take it the way it is, and that's where it is today. So, you know, I know it's a little bit premature, but we love to do this. And uh, when we work in, in Ottawa, uh, us political reporters, um, it, is, it is significant, though. Is it Trudeau fatigue? Is it liberal fatigue? How do you see this? I think one early crumb that we can really latch on to will be what shakes out in Mississauga Lakeshore because that riding is still waiting for a by-election call and we'll, we'll see, you know, I think it was one of the too close to call uh, yeah. ridings, like yeah, enhanced into your map and we'll see if that riding, which was held by a liberal incumbent, uh, stays liberal or goes conservative. So. Etobicoke Lakeshore, we're talking about Oakville, we're talking about ridings like Oshawa that actually the conservatives and the NDP can win. These are bellwether ridings that are now up for grabs. And when they're up for grabs, it's bad news for the incumbent government. It is really too early. Is it, is it really that too early, this tendency? We see it now. Have you seen it before uh, Pierre Poiliev was became the leader of the Conservative because you were, were seeing this tendency of the Conservatives being ahead of the Liberals. <clears throat> yeah, well, what we haven't seen before are the new Democrat numbers consistently being in the 20s. And that's really the spoiler for all of this. You know, it fundamentally changed the math. You know, when the NDP were in the 20, that's when, you know, Tom Mulcair, right, did really well. Jack Layton did really well, and it's because of those vote splits. So it's not necessarily the number. It's the fact that we're in an environment that is creating vote splits that hurt the liberals. It's always interesting to talk about that, but the election may be really far, far away. Uh, Nick, thanks for joining us. Zian and Max, stick around because we will be back after these messages coming up. 
Who will succeed Alberta Premier Jason Kenney? His United Conservative Party chooses a new leader tomorrow. Will the government go further right with frontrunner Daniel Smith? Our press gallery panel will return to weigh in. Don't go away. been the privilege of a lifetime to be able to serve uh, Calgarians and Albertans. I will be finishing my time in public service with a heart full of gratitude uh, and with no fundamental regrets. I will be staying as a member of the Legislative Assembly uh, for at least a period of time. I haven't uh, quite sorted all of that out. It will depend in part by, about the, uh, the new leader and, uh, and other issues. And Alberta will be getting a new premier tomorrow after surviving a UCP leadership review back in May with 51% of the vote. Premier Jason Kenney decided to step down as party leader and premier. Kenney, a former federal conservative cabinet minister, has been a thorn in the Trudeau government's side since he took the premiership, notably challenging the federal carbon tax in court. But will a new premier be able to repair the Alberta federal relationship or exacerbate tensions. Let's bring back the press gallery to dig in. Politico Z and Loomis here and the National Observers Max Fawcett joins us from Alberta. Nice to have you guys back. Um, Max, you know, put this in perspective for us. Former Wild Rose Party leader Daniel Smith is the front runner to succeed Jason Kenney. Um, what do you, what can Albertans expect from a Smith-led um, government? Well, I think they can expect all the best and worst things about Jason Kenney with the volume turned up to 11. So you mentioned that, um, you know, what does this mean for, for federal provincial relations? Uh, if, if Kenney and Trudeau's relationship was frosty, then, then this is going to be ice cold because Daniel Smith not only plans to introduce a, a ludicrous piece of legislation called the Alberta Sovereignty Act, which basically every constitutional lawyer has said is, is flagrantly unconstitutional. She also plans to re-challenge the carbon tax uh, constitutionality that Jason Kenney lost in court uh, on the basis that there's a war in Ukraine and inflation is up. Uh, those are not actually constitutional arguments, but she is going to try to present them. It, it really is going to be um, just crazier than, than even, I think, the last two or three years were, and I don't think anyone thought it could get much crazier than that. And, you know, to Miss Smith, this is this is the political comeback that nobody saw coming. Uh, she more or less squandered her own career back in 2015 by by having her party cross the floor to join the PCs. We all thought she was done. And here she is ready to walk away with the leadership and, and the premiership of our province. So uh, interesting times ahead, to say the least. So do you think that uh, Zian relationships will be even more frosty? Uh, with her, or is this just the kind of stuff you say when you're campaigning and then you're more pragmatic? I would think it's going to get a bit frostier, and I would think that we'd be due for a kind of resistance 2.0 cover uh, coming <laughs> down the pipeline. Um, you know, but my knee jerk reaction with the story is to kind of leave like the 
analysis about Danielle Smith and what her government will do to the more seasoned Alberta watchers, because I'm specifically very curious about what's going to happen with Jason Kenney next. What's going to be his next act? Because I followed him down to D.C. Uh, back in the spring and just watching him like move through the crowds, uh, you know, shaking hands with senators. Uh, he's a creature of politics. He loves this. He, this is his jam. So I don't think we're going to see the last of Jason Kenney uh, anytime soon. Uh, you know, we'll see if he takes the Brad Wall route and goes to uh, a high-profile law firm to become a special advisor, uh, or if he, you know, becomes, a, I guess, a, a troublemaker thorn um, from Twitter, lobbying kind of like uh, critiques um, to Ottawa, or maybe he'll, you know, kind of mend the relations and try to uh, become like a soothsayer uh, translator between Alberta and Ottawa. And maybe come back to Ottawa, you think? Maybe? Maybe. Who maybe. knows? Um, you know, Max, that Daniel Smith does not have a seat in the legislature. You know, will that be a hurdle for her? I know that she says that some uh, uh, have offered her a seat. Is that, is that what you're expecting? Well, it's very interesting because there is a seat open already uh, in Calgary Elbow, which is which is an eminently winnable riding for a conservative, certainly the premier. She does not seem interested in that seat. She is instead, it sounds like, going to force somebody in one of the rural ridings where she's more comfortable to step down. Uh, she'll hold a by-election there, but it sounds like won't hold a by-election in the vacant riding of Calgary Elbow. So there's lots of interesting sort of machinations at play here. I think one thing for, for everyone to keep an eye on is, you know, I think we expect a pivot in these sorts of situations. You know, the, the conservative leadership candidate says some things to get the base riled up and then and then pivots once they win. Daniel Smith is not going to pivot. She said as much in an interview with The Globe and Mail today. She said she's going to double down. So any notion that she will moderate, move to the middle uh, or, or soften her policy positions, I think, is going to be uh, met with some surprise. Uh, and I think one of the other interesting subplots to follow here is Jason Kenney, because he mentioned he's going to sit in the legislature uh, for a period. I think that period will be long enough to vote against Miss Smith's Sovereignty Act. That will be his final act in Alberta politics for the next little while. Uh, and then we'll just have to wait and see where he ends up. And is there a lot of support in the legislature for a, an Alberta Sovereignty Act? I would say it's mixed. I, I mean, I think she can get it passed. I think there's enough uh, members of her caucus who like being in power and don't want to go into an election right now that they'll, they'll swallow their pride and vote for it. But there's the possibility that, especially if Jason Kenney mounts up uh, a sort of resistance to it, ironically, you know, now he's the resistance to Danielle Smith in, in addition to Justin Trudeau, maybe there's enough people that either don't show up to vote or who vote against it that, that we could have an election sooner than perhaps Ms. Smith would like. A shift to the right. We have we have 30 seconds left. Is this? Are we seeing this tendency of a shift? Politicians shifting to the right. I think we're seeing some sort of era where you know power is obviously protecting power, but against kind of like the foil of this, um, I guess, overflow of freedom shibboleth too. So it's it's very <laughs> interesting we'll time. I mean, we'll find out tomorrow. Um, uh, thanks to the two of you, and that's your Power Play Day in politics. Thank you for joining us. We'll be back right here tomorrow. Have a great evening.